You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, we gather in your name and we gather around your word. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us. We thank you, Lord, for your love and mercy and for your goodness to us. In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen. We've been looking at the book of Genesis from a kind of storyline aspect. We spent uh, one Sunday in Genesis 1 and 2, and then our second Sunday was in Genesis 3 through 11. We went from the beauty and grandeur of God's creation to kind of the mess of the human condition from Genesis 3 to 11. And then last week we looked at Abraham from Genesis 12 to 25. Obviously we've been covering a lot of ground, but we've been looking at it from a kind of storyline aspect. Uh, we, we don't have in the Bible the kind of Western biography that we have grown accustomed to. What we have in the Bible is you can picture Hebrew people sitting in a circle telling the story and the story is God's great salvation history drama it's that story and it's interesting what the Bible will tend to concentrate on and what it will kind of skip over and sometimes the most important and the most significant aspects of that salvation history story are said very poignantly but briefly whereas we get kind of the full-blown account of how Isaac comes by his wife. Uh, it may take 60 verses to do that, but the, the center of that Abraham story was the act of circumcision and how that signed God's redemptive people in a very physical and in a very dramatic way. So the story, you have to kind of get into it and uh, we often preach it in small bits. We call them pericopes at school. Um, but you need something of the scope of the story. It's interesting how many students come to Beeson, and it's not until they get into Paul House's Old Testament theology class that they understand sort of the scope and the drama of the story and how it's all, all in a non-novelist uh, way, knit together uh, through types, through analogies, through metaphor. So I, I just would encourage you, if coming out of our study of Genesis, the one thing maybe to take in is to read larger sections of Scripture and grasp something of the drama and the story of Scripture. And uh, a good exercise uh, at times if you're looking at a particular passage is to see it in its entirety and then go back and look at it. Uh, I think, you know, as a Presbyterian uh, and being an ordained in a Presbyterian church that did not necessarily use the lectionary for preaching, and I did preach for 30 years or so in dealing with kind of the whole counsel of God. I think as a church we were concerned for that. I think now, coming into a, 
uh, tradition that uses the lectionary, I'm particularly apt to teach it, to preach it. Because, uh, so you take a section out of 1 John, that would have been a book that we preached through expositionally. So now for me to come back to it and preach a part out of it, uh, I think it's necessary to, to see it in its entirety, to see it in its whole. Well, today we have a special Mother's Day passage, Jacob and Joseph. Uh, I kind of hit it wrong, I think. Um, uh, I want us to look at these two, this father and this son, in the totality of their story. And I think that Genesis was put together in tradition. We have Moses being the uh, editor, the author. Uh, it was put together with a real sense of symmetry to looking at Jacob and Joseph. If you look at the story carefully, their intros are somewhat comparable. The development of their story seems to parallel. And wouldn't you know it, on the last chapter of the book of Genesis, they both end up together. They're both mentioned in Genesis 50. Uh, there is a uh, kind of a, a structure to Genesis uh, 25 to 50, uh, and which uh, I think that it's uh, real interesting to see these two lives in parallel. I'm not going to spend much time on your outline with the conflicted family. You can go back and look at those passages because we're going to cover some of that as we go. And then the one greater than Jacob. Just this morning I was thinking of the just the relationship of the Gospel of John to the book of Genesis. Obviously Genesis 1 and John 1 are parallel. The Word was in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God in tying in with Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. You, that's an obvious parallel. But then a not so obvious parallel is that the first week of creation, the week, creation week, which lasted a lot more than uh, seven 24-hour days, we have no idea between Genesis 1 and 2 what kind of time span existed there, but you have a week of creation and in a way, the first week of Jesus' ministry is kind of like a week of redemption. And it's so interesting to just try, you know, and, and Genesis 1 and 2 kind of end with the wedding, the creation of Adam and Eve. And Jesus' first week of public ministry ends with the wedding of Cana. And so I think that's conscious on the Apostle John's part of paralleling Genesis with John. And uh, just this note, one greater than Jacob, in John chapter 4, with the woman at the well. And you remember that dialogue. Jesus approaching her in need. Very different from the approach with Nicodemus, but approaching her in need, would you give me a drink? Well, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. And Jesus said, if you only knew who it was that was speaking to you, and she says, well, are you greater than our father Jacob? And interesting, a Samaritan believing in the God of Jacob. And I think that that ties in with uh, that whole God of Jacob uh, story in Genesis. Well, father and son, Jacob and Joseph. 
Jacob and Joseph lived life on, on B on your uh, outline. Jacob and Joseph lived life about as differently as any father and son could live. Half of the book of Genesis is devoted to their stories. And the book of Genesis meant for us to see Jacob and Joseph together. The book closes by pairing their deaths, but it was not only their deaths that invite comparison, it was the way they lived their lives. Their lives contrast between self-sufficiency and God dependency, and I'm suggesting it in five ways. The way we relate to others, the way we relate to God, the way we get things done, the way we relate to the future, and the way we approach death. I outline those in the, uh, below there with the parallel columns. Moses wove a narrative that illustrates two very different ways of embracing the promises of God. This is interesting because I think Jacob and Joseph before God are held equally secure and are children of the promise. But boy, they lived life differently. And they lived life differently both with others and with God. Uh, and these are the par parallel comparisons I'm in my mind. Uh, I have no scholar that backs me up on this. It's funny, you read the uh, commentaries on Genesis, and they kind of go back to what I was talking about before, more of the pericope mentality of verse by verse by verse, studying them. I think sometimes we need maybe more English lit teachers to look at the Bible and describe it for us. Because from a literary standpoint, when you start looking at it this way, it becomes pretty obvious, it seems. But biblical scholarship is yet to do that in a very consistent way. So uh, I don't have somebody I can point to that's a lot more knowledgeable than me to back up this story at this point. But compare Jacob and Joseph on the question of communication, duplicity versus transparency, deal-making versus promise-keeping. Turn the page, and these are the five categories that I want us to spend a few moments looking at together. Two ways of relating. Jacob represents duplicity and Joseph transparency. And basically, let's begin with their two introductory stories. We are introduced to Jacob through his mother, getting him to deceive his father Isaac over the blessing. And remember, the Lord told, uh, told uh, Rebekah that, uh, that of the two sons, the younger would be served by the older. And so she really has the word of the Lord behind her actions, but her actions are deceptive and duplicitous, and she gets Jacob to go along with it. And you remember Jacob... Isaac wanted a meal. Esau was the hunter the, uh, and apparently a good cook, and he just relished having a meal that Esau would cater to him and that he would then bless Esau. And apparently Jacob, although he's got a lot more years to, uh, Isaac has a lot more years to go, apparently felt that he it was time now to give the blessing. Of course, he was giving it in private, which is also an oddity in terms of the custom and culture of the day for 
uh, for that time. So Esau is sent off into the field, and Rebekah gets the meal ready and dresses Jacob up in a sort of some kind of hairy garment or whatever, and, uh, and then Jacob presents it to his father ahead of time. And Isaac gives a blessing like none other. There's nothing else that he could possibly say in support of his son. Uh, but he's giving it to the wrong son as far as he's concerned, but he doesn't know it. He does question the voice of uh, Jacob. You don't sound like Esau. You sound like Jacob. But nevertheless, he's won over by his wife's cooking, not his oldest son's cooking. All of that is just, you know, reeks of duplicity. And uh, Esau comes back and, uh, and Isaac says, oh my goodness, I've just given everything away to your younger brother. And Esau is angry. Angry is all get out. Uh, you know, there is an earlier story where uh, Esau sells his birthright for uh, a bowl of stew. So in a way, the story is crafted in such a way that we don't really feel sorry for Esau. He kind of already gave it away, and he's married Canaanite women and all that. Uh, and, and yet it's hard to really uh, admire Jacob for the kind of strategy of manipulation. Well, Jacob is sent off. And he will go to Laban. Now, where's, what's the initial story with Joseph? You know, Joseph is favored by his father. Uh, Joseph's name means, uh, and God will add. And Joseph is the, the son of, uh, of Rachel, uh, who was barren for a long time before Joseph was conceived. And uh, we meet Joseph as Jacob's favorite, envied by his brothers. And you remember uh, Jacob made a coat for uh, Joseph, setting him apart, a beautiful, fine uh, robe or cloak, whatever. And uh, his brothers really envied him. But the, what brought it to the point of contention in the family was Joseph's dream. He dreamed that his brothers would come and uh, bow down before him and that the suns and the stars would bow down before him. And he shares this dream. And uh, they're angry. They're provoked. They hate him. Uh, he's in a very vulnerable position because of his transparency. Now, it's interesting to read biblical commentary on this because most people throw Joseph under the bus for sharing this. Uh, I'm using a metaphor there. Um, and I, Tim Keller, for example, you know, he's being a smart aleck. He's sharing what he shouldn't be sharing. Uh, well, right or wrong, I disagree. Uh, I, uh, how do you not share this? How do you keep it to yourself? And I actually see something of a parallel between the Christian in the world and, and Joseph and his family. Because Joseph and his family is, is given this dream and he, 
It shares it. Uh, the Christian in the world ought to share the gospel. And what's the gospel? The gospel is Jesus' word. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. How does that make you popular in the world? To say that Jesus is the only way. That immediately creates a tension between those who don't believe that and your testimony that you do. And I see some parallel there. He couldn't deny the truth. He couldn't deny what he had received. And he shares it. You know, the contrast here between Jacob's duplicity and Joseph's transparency. Uh, Jacob is hated because of his lying. Three times he says, you know, I am Esau. Uh, Joseph is hated because he tells what he had actually received the truth. And he wasn't responsible for that truth. He was just the recipient of it. Well, that leads when uh, Joseph uh, goes out to his brothers and uh, also he gives a bad report about the brothers. Is he again just telling the truth or is he being really poor? Um, but remember, he, the brothers decide that they're going to do away with their uh, younger uh, brother who's been such a problem for them. And uh, while they're debating whether to kill him because they're thrown in a pit, uh, a caravan comes along and they sell him as a slave. And he ends up in, G in Egypt. Number two, the ways of responding to God. Dealmaker versus promise bearer. Uh, you remember the occasion, if you've read that story, of Jacob in, at Bethel, where uh, he receives this dream. And the dream is that he sees a ladder between heaven and earth, and angels are on that ladder, and the Lord is above. And that kind of experience he designates with a monument at Bethel. Bethel meaning house of God, that God was present uh, to him. And he understood that. And in that occasion, uh, Jacob pledges himself to God, but in a conditional pledge. You know, if you make life work for me, I will, uh, I'll be devoted to you. And uh, that conditional pledge is He's kind of deal-making with God. You know, if this works out, then I'm for you. Uh, you know, interesting, from a preaching standpoint, I might spend some time on that because uh, do we kind of wager with God the same way? If, if you work this out for me, if you protect me from this, then I'll be devoted to you. Uh, Joseph, on the other hand, doesn't, isn't a deal-maker. You know, Jacob's name means striver or uh, manipulator. Uh, and Joseph, though, in the various situations where you find him, he, he seems always uh, present in order to bear witness to God. Uh, I find very, uh, I find in the Joseph story very little to be critical of him about. He seems presented in such a way that 
he's not going to be making deals. And it's interesting to compare Jacob and Laban's life, Laban being uh, his future father-in-law initially, and uh, Rebecca and Leah and that whole story. But he enters Laban's world, and Laban is a lot like him, or Jacob is a lot like him, in terms of manipulating, changing the terms of agreement. Uh, a lawyer's nightmare uh, would be Laban. And uh, he's making, both of them are making these deals. Jacob enters into Laban's world, he's in his world, and he's of his world. Whereas Joseph enters into Potiphar's house as a, uh, as a slave, becomes so responsible and so helpful that Potiphar makes him second in command to his household. And wherever he comes, Joseph seems to be a person of integrity, of honesty, of hard work. So instead of being a, a deal maker, you've got Joseph being a promise bearer. And that becomes, comes to, a, I think, a, a real head when uh, when it happens with the dreams that Pharaoh has, but we'll hold that for a moment. Number three, two ways of living or two life strategies, escape and witness. Uh, Jacob's experience with Laban parallels Joseph's experience in Egypt under Pharaoh. Both were blessed by the Lord with great success. The whole time Jacob is with Laban, everything becomes uh, productive and successful, and Joseph's experience uh, with Pharaoh likewise. But Jacob is always trying to escape from Laban, and Joseph was always trying to find ways to witness to Pharaoh. Jacob was not only in Laban's world, but of Laban's world. Joseph was in Pharaoh's world, but not of Pharaoh's world. Joseph started out as a slave and ended up as Pharaoh's interior minister. Jacob was immersed in the jealousies and conflicts inherent in the mess of the human condition. Number four, two ways of facing the future, fear or faith. After escaping from Laban, and it must have felt like an escape, and he's able to leave with his two wives and much of what he had accrued through that time being with Laban, a wealthy man. But what was the greatest fear in his life? Meeting Esau, the brother that he had uh, treacherously manipulated, uh, manipulatively gotten his blessing. And that was a dominant fear that, uh, that Jacob experienced. And God reassured Jacob that he was able to go back and should go back and that the Lord would protect him. Jacob still wasn't convinced that the Lord would do that and he edged his, uh, hedged his bets by dividing his family, dividing his property, uh, sending them off in different directions and all of that. But in the end, Esau had softened and Esau approached Jacob as a brother a brother who, as it were, had forgotten all that had gone on. 
And there's some in the story about Esau also understanding the mistake he made in marrying Canaanite women and taking a, uh, a wife from the family as well, uh, his family roots. It's interesting, in this Genesis story, Ishmael stays in it, Esau stays in it. These ones that could have been, in a sense, flung off, yet are also in the story and remain in the story and remain, as it were, in the blessing. Um, God gives Jacob assurance that Esau will receive him and that he will be blessed. Joseph, on the other hand, uh, in this, uh, under this category of fear and faith, uh, he meets now the brothers that have been separated from him for 20 years. It's interesting. Jacob was probably with Laban about 20 years, and Joseph is about 20 years separated from his family. Well, there's a famine in Egypt. Um, Jacob sends his sons, minus Benjamin, to go to Egypt looking for food. They enter in to the interior minister's court, Joseph. They do not recognize Joseph. Joseph immediately recognizes them. I guess 20 years in Egyptian culture, probably there were a style difference here or there, but uh, they don't recognize Joseph. And it's that whole story of the brothers and Joseph is played out at great length. And the drama of it is phenomenal. Um, uh, he sends them back, but it sets them up. He puts silver that they paid for the, the food that was going to go back to, um, to Jacob and family. And it's found in there and... You know, he makes them seem like really dishonest uh, Israelites. Uh, he forces them to leave uh, uh, one of the brothers behind. I think it was Reuben. I forget right now. And they leave him behind, and he wants to see Benjamin, the youngest brother. He doesn't call him by Benjamin, of course. Uh, he doesn't disclose that he's Joseph. And they go back, and uh, this whole thing gets played out until finally, as you remember, when they come back, and they come back with Benjamin, uh, Joseph can't contain himself anymore and just starts to weep, uh, asks all the Egyptians to leave. And he tells his brother, I'm Joseph. Well, they're shocked and probably in great fear immediately that uh, their lives might be in jeopardy because they know what they did to their brother. They know that this is a family story that has you know, been so difficult to deal with for all these years, for decades, what the family had between uh, their father. Well, uh, Joseph says, no. Uh, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. And that's where that, uh, the idea of, of Joseph being a promise bearer, Joseph being transparent 
uh, Joseph being a witness. All of that seems really a powerful story. Um, and in a way, Jacob kind of represents, I think, the, uh, you know, the God of Jacob, kind of represents that covenant God, whereas Joseph represents the coming of the Messiah. He's, he's like uh, a parallel or a parable of Jesus. This is the kind of life, and that's why it gives a tremendous Christian potency to, to see this as a model for how the Christian ought to live in this world. Not with duplicity, but transparency. Not as a deal maker, but as a promise bearer. Not as an escape from the world, but as a witness to the world. And uh, that's a powerful, powerful story. And then finally, two ways of building a legacy. A tradition and destiny. Uh, oh, and by the way, I should say, uh, I skipped the last paragraph under number four. Uh, and I do want to draw this attention on because Jacob is moving too. Jacob is growing for this. Under number four, the second paragraph, Jacob's reunion with Joseph in Egypt is preceded by a strategic encounter with the Lord. And this time, when the Lord speaks to him, Jacob says, not if this works out, then I will follow you. He says what Abraham said in Genesis 20, here I am. Genesis 22, here I am. Uh, and now the conditional aspects of a relationship with God have, are gone, and it's here I am. Um, I think that's significant. In the narrative, Jacob is a picture of progressive sanctification. He was no longer deal-making, setting terms, wrestling with God. Instead, he was practicing the discipline of surrender. And his name gets changed to Israel. God will achieve. God will win. Um, now, number five. Two ways of building a legacy, tradition and destiny. So, as I said... Uh, Jacob is interviewed by the Pharaoh uh, in Egypt. And, and Jacob sounds just like Jacob. If you read his story before accounting for his life, it's been a hard life. He's been a victim. It's been really rough and all of that. Uh, it just sounds like Jacob. Uh, and then Jacob dies. The brothers are really afraid when Jacob dies because they think, well, now it's going to happen. Uh, so they still were not convinced of what uh, of Joseph's honesty and his integrity and the God of Joseph. But um, it's, uh, the, Joseph reassures the brothers that nothing has changed. Um, they are are loved and and they're his brothers. But what does Jacob want done with his body when he dies? What's it taken back? Taken back to Canaan, taken back to what will be Israel, taken back right away. And so Joseph and company and everybody journeys back and they bury their father, Jacob. And Genesis ends with Joseph dying. And what does Joseph want done? Joseph says, don't take me back. 
Don't take me back until you all go back. And, you know, Jacob is into the tradition, get my body back so it's buried where, uh, where the family's buried, where uh, Rebecca's buried, where Abraham's buried, where Sarah's buried. Get me back there. But Joseph, don't take me back until you all go back. And I see that as, you know, a real faith in God's destiny for his people. Joseph did not want to go back without the understanding of, uh, and the tradition is that Joseph is buried in Shechem. The Bible doesn't help us with this one as to, you know, what happens. But it does give us the witness and the testimony. Well, two very different lives, I think both are encompassed by the promise of God. Both are included, the God of Jacob and the God of Joseph. But I do think that the God of Joseph is pointing us to Joseph as an example of what discipleship means, what following the Lord Jesus means, uh, with a sense of uh, sort of this, this, the, this completeness that redemption brings about in one's life. So any thoughts or comments as I've talked uh, pretty consistently for this <laughs> time? Uh, any thoughts, questions, ideas that emerged? Does the idea of the story and the parallels between these two, you know, this would be a great Father's Day message. I've actually preached on it on Father's Day. It's a kind of it's a hard thing to pull so much together, but um, it certainly works in Africa. In Africa, where time is not a big factor, you can develop the whole story at length. Uh, but any thoughts you have in relationship to this? Tom? I think I had also noticed reading the Old Testament, Joseph sort of stands out as all of the other Israelites chosen by God. You know, I was really not really good people. But then Joseph sort of stood above the others as different. And he's actually the one I mentioned to an old schoolmate of mine who was Jewish but atheistic. And I mentioned, you know, God didn't choose Israel because they were really good people. He did for his own reasons. So Joseph, I noticed, was different. And my friend never replied. Well, I think that's a, that's a great observation because I think God keeps with the promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and in spite of them, not because of them. <laughs> I mean, they don't earn it. It's always an emphasis on God's mercy. Um, but with Joseph, I think we really have a good example of, and yet it's, it's the person who lived in the most adverse, difficult life, sold as a slave, living as a slave, unjustly uh, blamed by Potiphar's wife, ending up in prison, telling the dream of the baker and the cupbearer, and then waiting for two years before there was any word back. 
uh, even though Joseph had asked them to tell uh, the Pharaoh about him. Uh, and then becoming the, you know, the interior minister, and I guess becoming a Democrat, because he required, uh, uh, what, 30% of people's income to be saved. Uh, high, high taxation there. Uh, all the people were ordered to, uh, for the seven plentiful years, to put aside some 30% for the seven lean years. But they didn't have the seven lean years when they were taking the 30% tax. So that must have been a little hard. He must have been perceived as harsh, but in the end, uh, Egypt was able to survive because of the wisdom of his um, political astuteness, because God led him in understanding the dream. When Pharaoh said, well, explain the dream to me, you know, you've got these seven lean cattle coming up, and, uh, uh, well, seven, full, seven fat cattle followed by seven lean cattle, and and Joseph comes up with, we're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of, of drought and, and famine. Uh, but Joseph said, I can't interpret that dream. Only the Lord God can interpret the dream. Uh, he's always giving credit to the Lord. I mean, that's just how Joseph is wired. It would be interesting, because I don't have an answer, to explore why he played it out with his brothers the way he did. He kind of made them... I thought we were talking about how good Joseph is. <laughs> uh, there's a sense in which he was driving a point home that they may not have understood if he had said, I'm Joseph, uh, here's your food. And uh, they needed process, I guess, uh, to face the truth, face the fact. Um, but what a story. I mean, I mean, you almost hear Joseph weeping when he recognizes himself to them and the, you know, all the years of estrangement and abandonment and loneliness and suffering, um, and yet always with a sense of the Lord's presence. Well, uh, keep reading the story. Um, this ends our Genesis uh, time. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, it's been good. Let me pray. Thanks, Lord, for your word, for the power of this uh, salvation history that you have given to us and that we are in. And uh, we pray for its culmination, for its climax. Uh, we pray, Lord, for faithfulness, a kind of faithfulness like Joseph, 
But we thank you that your grace keeps including Esau's and Ishmael's and Jacob's. Together we give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.